0: Well, thank you very much, Kevin, and worship team. Before I forget, uh, for our uh, first-time guest, I wanted to uh, remind you, let you know, that we have a a book for you that we'd love for you to take on your way out called um, How Good is Good Enough. It's on the Welcome Center on your way out. And um, I've read it, really enjoy it, and hope you can find that helpful as well. All right. Well, welcome to 2018. And we're starting a brand-new series that we are calling Bigger. And the reason we're doing this is because we all ate too much at Christmas time? No, not really. If you ask anybody as they start their new year and they get uh, into the mindset of what a new year will look like and their new season uh, will look like, almost everybody, if you catch them in a good moment, not in a hard moment or a discouragement but if you catch them in a good moment, almost everybody has a, a dream or idea about what a potential future would look like that looks better than the, the, the present. And certainly, we hope, would look better than the past. And that inspires us to do all kinds of things, to train more, to study more, to work harder, to set higher goals or whatever it might be. And in America, at least, for most people, they would say that better is bigger and bigger is better. That our dreams of a better future are almost always synonymous with bigger. It wouldn't be too bad an idea, would it, if you had a bigger Paycheck in 2018, would it? It wouldn't be too bad if your house was bigger or if your car was bigger or your dreams were bigger or your hopes were bigger or your faith was bigger. Like, bigger represents, for many of us, better. It simply does. The two go Hand hand, in hand. And so as we begin a new year thinking about what could be and what a potential future could be for all kinds of things for us, I wanted to step back and ask a couple of questions. And one of those is, is this, that if you have a view of better and a view of bigger, I want to suggest that that view of better and bigger is actually built upon some hidden assumptions or what I'm going to call a worldview. That we're going to build our view of bigger and better on a worldview or a set of assumptions that is sometimes verbalized and often not. And in that worldview, we're going to assume some things are true, and that will drive us to do other things. And if you've been around long enough, you know that the things that are assumed that aren't verbalized are the things that can get us in trouble if we don't stop and think about them. And so before we get too far down the road of building a future that is better, and we hope bigger, than our current present, it is valuable to stop and step back and say, what is my default vision of bigger and better built on? What are the assumptions underneath what I'm building a future on. And I'm going to suggest that we all have several assumptions, and I want to throw that up here, that we all have assumptions about God, ourselves, others, how we should use our influence, and how we should see future success. That we all have assumptions about all of those things. We all have assumptions about God, whatever in the world that means when I use that term to you. For some that might be a supreme being, for some that's the creator God of the universe, others it's the God of the Bible, others it's Jesus Christ, others it may be just a a force in nature perhaps, or others are like I don't even believe in a God, I think you're wasting your breath, to which I will say we're we're glad you're here by the way. (laughs) Like there's room and space here at GPC to have that conversation and talk about what in the world does it mean even to talk about who God is. We welcome that dialogue and we embrace your questions about who God is. But I will tell you that any worldview has underneath it an assumption about God and who he is. In fact, one of my favorite professors in seminary, Jeff Bingham, and I think I mentioned this quote to you before, he said, the most important thought you will ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God. That's a lot of thought in there. But the most important thought you will ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God because it informs absolutely everything else that you do. And so we have assumptions about God. We also have assumptions about ourselves. And you, you sometimes can and sometimes can't verbalize this. You will see this mostly when you look in the mirror. And you have a reaction to yourself if you're younger or older or whatever, and you kind of think, mm, I'm not looking good enough yet. My hair isn't quite right. Or you go to bed with those thoughts in your own mind about insufficiencies, insecurities, things that you wish were different about who you are. There are certain ways that you see yourself, and sometimes we see ourselves too highly, sometimes too low, but we have hidden assumptions about who we think we really are, and the same for how we see other people. What is your role in my life and my role in your life? How about for my children or your children or your parents or your grandparents or your family? What is the role that they could or should play in your better future, in your bigger future? that you're dreaming of and how about the influence that you wield and you all, by the way, yield and wield influence. What? How should that be used and how about future success? Do you not want future success and it is not okay to verbalize that and say, yes, I'd like to be successful. I'd love for my business to expand and grow. I'd love for my family to grow. I'd love... For my legacy and my family to continue to grow where we are successful. I'm successful as a father or as a husband or a wife or a mom. Passing on the faith to the next generation. Like that's success for me. Is it not right to verbalize that and push forward that? Or is that too prideful or arrogant? What are your assumptions of future bigger and better built on? And so in this series I want to get down to talk about each one of these week by week. And this morning I want to talk about our assumptions about God. Our assumptions about who God is. If the most important thought you can ever think is a thought you think of when you think of God, it is critically important to stop and ask who in the world is this God in this world. Now the way that I want to track this in this series is what I want to do for five weeks is I want to take us on a little bit of a, a journey through the Bible and I want us to learn from people who have essentially who have prayed and written down prayers that will help us understand assumptions and worldviews behind each one of these. I'm going to use prayers in the Bible to help us get underneath how we could and should see God, ourselves, others, our influence, and future success. And the reason I'm using prayer as a means or a tool to help us get underneath our assumptions is a couple reasons. Number one, Prayer reflects the best of who we are. It reflects the best of our thinking. It reflects the best passions of our heart. And that is true in the Scriptures as well. Secondly, it's very actionable. In other words, at the end of this morning, we will have gone through a prayer in the Bible. You can pray that prayer. Anytime you want. You can understand the spirit of that prayer. Same for next week. We're going to go through another prayer. and You can pray that prayer too terms of what do I do with what I've just heard, what we're going to cover in the next five weeks is very actionable for you if you would have a desire to continue to pray through what your bigger and better future looks like, each with an attempt to help clarify and get underneath what are my assumptions of my world and this world built upon. Now, every worldview, every system of thinking has a kind of a, a prayer, um, I'm going to say the library, has prayers that are used. Every major worldview, every major religious worldview has them, and they reflect and they teach us about how they see the world. In the world of Hinduism, they have several prayers, and same for Buddhism, Islam, and Judaism. In the world of Hinduism, there's a prayer called the life-giving prayer. Listen to this prayer for a minute, see if you can identify some assumptions under this. Hindus will pray. We worship the three-eyed one who is fragrant and who nourishes well all beings. May he liberate us from death for the sake of immortality, even as the cucumber is severed from its bondage to the creeper. Now, in the Christian world, this sounds different to us, but this is the world of the Hindu who prays this prayer. And let me ask you, would that not inform your worldview? Would that not inform how you see who God is? It would inform even how you see the cucumber and its bondage to the creeper. It changes how you see that, right? Buddhism. Here's one of their prayers in Buddhism. We reverently pray, pray for eternal harmony in the universe. May the weather be seasonable, and may the harvest be fruitful. May countries exist in harmony, and may all people enjoy happiness. Get the sense and the feel of how they see the world. In Islam, there's five daily prayers in Islam, each with a different focus, and the repetition of it all drives so much of the Islamic worldview. But one of their prayers is, Allah is the greatest. Praise and glory be to you, O Allah. Blessed be your name. Exalted be your majesty and glory. There is no God but you. That reinforces an Islamic worldview. Judaism has a plethora of prayers outlined in their book called, the the prayer book called the Siddur. One of those prayers is the prayer that they pray upon waking up. And here's how that goes. I give thanks before you, living and eternal king, that you have returned within me my soul with compassion. How abundant is your faithfulness. If you grew up in the church, in the Christian church, that begins to feel a little bit more like what you may be used to. Because Christianity is built upon the shoulders of early Jewish thinking, thought processes. Now, we get an idea in the Christian world what it means to pray and communicate with God, not only through the book of prayer, the Siddur, but primarily through how Jesus walked in his world. An early Jewish man and the prayers that he led that changed the way that people saw the world of prayer at that time. And so what I want to do is walk you through this morning a prayer that Jesus prayed and offered to those in the Jewish world at his time as a prayer to pray, to think about how you should see God Because Jesus didn't put it in the words that Jeff Bingham did, but I think he knows this is right. The most important thought you will ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God because everything else is built on top of that. And the prayer that Jesus offers to his first century Jewish audience is a prayer that begins by changing, and reinforcing something that was actually a hidden truth deep within Judaism that had gotten lost but began to change how Christians see God. I want to invite you to look at it with me in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to, to invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There's a Bible near you in the pew around you. That's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. I'd love to have you take that with you uh, this morning if you'd like. Or you can look it up on your phone or your tablet, your device. Matthew chapter 6 is the first book in what we call the New Testament um, and as you're looking that up, I, I want you to know the New Testament is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. You can find that by flipping through about two-thirds, and find Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. But I want you to, to understand a little bit of how praying worked, in the world of prayer worked in first-century Judaism. Um, prayer... For the devout Jew was a regular systematic event happening three times a day and, and generally happened around three o'clock and then before and after that. So around three PM in the afternoon, it would not be uncommon to see Jewish men primarily praying outside on the corner or wherever they might be at their market stand or whatever it is or in the synagogue making their way there to pray out loud, because praying out loud was a normal, common uh, expression of prayer in the uh, New Testament time, in the first century, and a Jewish man would often pray outdoors, and even when um, Jewish men were, and and women, now in the privacy of their own home, they would also pray out loud. Generally, that was traditionally what was done, is a prayer out loud, not as much private as we may do here uh, today. Prayers uh, in the synagogue were often repeated prayers, uh, prayers of repetition done out loud over and over and over and over and over over again. The dominant way of seeing God as a Jew was as a covenant keeper God. He was the God of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. He was a God who was a covenant keeper, kind of loyal to his law kind of thing. So there was early prayers that were recited, and one of those prayers I want to show you up here, it's called the Aramaic... Okay, I may be saying that incorrectly, but I hope those who know can forgive me, whoever those people are. Here's what was actually going to be prayed in the early, uh, in the time when Jesus walked the planet. Okay, We have this kind of prayer that was repeated over and over in the uh, synagogue. Not in English, right, in Aramaic, but here it is. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime, and in your days, and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel, speedily and soon. Praised be his great name from eternity to eternity, and to this say, Amen. This Aramaic Kaddish, excuse me, Kaddish was repeated over and over and over again as a regular part of the Jewish cycle of prayer. And with this all as background, I want you to imagine what the world would have been like if you were walking around at that period of time in the first century with people praying out loud, prayers of recitation, synagogue life, and all that. And here's what happens when Jesus walks the earth and people begin to ask him a question. The disciples began to ask him questions. People around him began to ask him questions because they saw that Jesus prayed differently differently. And here's what Jesus gives as instruction about prayer in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. So look there with me in your Bible if you have it there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. That makes sense, right? You can imagine it, right? The street corners, the synagogues, the repetition out loud over and over. Three o'clock every day you hear the prayers rising. Jesus sees that context and he says, don't do that. Verse 6, but here's a contrast. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Homes in this time period were unique, of course. There was usually one inner room in the house. It was a storeroom for goods, and that could be locked because we really didn't want everybody stealing it. But by and large, there were no no locks on any doors except for that inner storeroom. Very open kind of uh, homes that were had. And so this is the call. Go inside that inner storeroom, lock yourself in the pantry, And pray to the God who is unseen. A completely different picture. Jesus saying, instead of going out there, standing publicly, reciting out loud, go to the most private place we can imagine in our time and space. And pray there. And then he continues, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Interesting. Don't keep on babbling like, not like the, the Jews, but he says like the pagans. In other words, people who are praying to pagan gods. Or is he referring to Jewish leaders? I don't know. But don't keep on babbling. His point is don't continue to use these words over and over and over and over and over again. You are babbling. And what was happening with the babbling was also that your um you're, volume of your voice would would increase. It's almost like, as one commentator said, it's almost like in this period of time, the Jews felt like, in order to get God to hear me and recognize that there's something going on that you haven't addressed, I need to speak loudly and pick up my volume and say it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, like maybe I'll get you to hear me. Because without that, certainly you aren't God. Like, you need me to speak with more volume. You need me to call out in faith. You need me to do that. And Jesus is like, listen, that's a waste. Like, I don't play that game. I don't play the game of you needing to yell at me. Like, I don't play that game where you need to just keep repeating the right words. I'm not a vending machine. Like, only if you yell loud enough, have enough passion, have enough great words, then I'll respond like, oh, I had no idea you were going through a struggle until you yelled at me. Now I got it. Like, no, listen... I know what you need before you ask me. And that's what Jesus says here in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You don't need to pull some emotional strings of prayer in order to get the God of the universe to respond to you. This does raise an interesting question. And if you're thinking with me this morning... The question is this, and it's a quandary for people who think about prayer in this way. If, verse 8 is true, do not be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, the question has to be asked, why should I pray at all? Why should you pray at all if God the Father knows what you need before you ask Him? Doesn't that seem stupid? Like, if I'm standing here and... I have a band-aid in my hand and one of my kids, when they're younger, fell down and scraped their knee. What do you think I'm going to do with that band-aid in my hand? You think I'm going to stand here and wait until they ask me for the band-aid? Like, no, right? Like, I'm going to give you what you need. And so this is a fair question of, is this God saying, the only way for you to get me to respond is to ask me for the things that you need. Does that not set him up as an egotistical, self-centered glory hound who's looking for you or for me to just say, oh God, I need you. You're so awesome. I'm so terrible. Please, will you help this poor soul out? And then God is kind of, his ego is kind of stroked and he's like, yeah, this is why I exist after all to help you poor people out. Now I can give you what you need. Like, This is a fair question. Why should you pray at all if God knows what you need before you ask? And I might say that there's a middle line that we can cut right through here, and that is thinking again of parenting and parenting small children. Imagine what it would be like as a parent of, let's say, a two- or three-year-old after dinner is over, and I don't know how it works in your home if you had kids of this age, uh, but sometimes in our home when they're especially younger and still now, there's uh, evening treats that are available uh, for consumption, right? And uh, can you imagine if you have a treat available for a kid at their two or three years old and they know it's there? As a parent, do you know, do you, do you think that they're going to ask for that treat at some point uh, in the evening? Uh, of course, of course. Now, when our kids are two or three, or when I was two or three and my parents were raising me, they always taught me, and you probably were taught, the magic word. Right? The magic word. A la peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? No, not that one. Please. right? What's the magic word? Please. right? And so what would happen in our home and what would happen when I was being raised? Before I could get the treat from my parents and before my kids could get the treat from us, what would we have them say? Please. Please. And then what would I do? I would gladly give the treat to my kid. Why would I do that? Does my ego need to be stroked? Am I a glory hound as a parent because I need my kid to recognize that I have the treat and they don't have it and the only way they get the treat is by me giving it to them after they say please. That way I feel that I'm in charge of the universe around here. Is that what's going on? In that interchange? Or... Am I helping my children realize you're not in control of the world? You're not in control of the world. You can't get everything you want all the time without any question. And am I not also helping my kids realize there's a relationship that I want with you? I want to give you the treat. I want you to take it from my hand. I want to see you. I want a moment with you. I'm not egotistical, I'm not a glory hound, but I want to be with you in this moment. The alternative is just to leave the treat on the table whenever you want it, go get it. And what kind of parenting is that? See, what God wants is a relationship. And this is what Jesus sets up. Your father knows what you want before you ask him. But we still want you to ask him. Because God wants a relationship with you. Not because he's a glory hound, but because he wants that moment of connection with you. Time of dependency and relationship. To look into your eyes and for you to look into his and know, I'm taking this from your hand. You're taking it from me. And this is a game changer for how the Jews would see the world. In fact, what Jesus says next is the game changer for how they see prayer. And it's a prayer that if you've been alive for any period of time, even if you're not in the church, you are likely familiar with this Prayer And if I started to recite it, you probably could recite it as well. And the reason that you could recite it is because this prayer became a prayer that was recited in the early church in the first century. Just years after Jesus died, this prayer began to be repeated in the liturgy of the early church over and over and over and over again, almost immediately. As I was a kid growing up in Barbados, at, at our school, at Harrison College there, uh, we would recite this prayer in our public school every day before we had announcements. Okay, that's just the way things worked there. This became a prayer that was re- repeated, repeated, repeated. And because it's repeated so much, we can miss the power of the newness of it in the moment. This was brand new, what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 9 with me. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray, coming off the heels of the relationship. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I want you to notice for a minute this prayer that I have up here, the Aramaic Kaddish, and Jesus' prayer that he just offered. Because this prayer is being prayed in the synagogue, and Jesus, in this context, offers this prayer to his disciples. Do you see the similarities that exist? Hallowed. Your name, name, hallowed. Do you see the will be done on earth? You know that which He created according to His will. Do you see this interest in the kingdom in both prayers? Do you see the connection there that? Uh, there's a forever and ever, not listed in Matthew, but later on in other um, examples of the Lord's Prayer, there's this view in the future that this, his kingdom will last forever and ever. In fact, what Jesus does is he takes much of this very same prayer, this Aramaic Kaddish, and reframes it and puts it in a context that is different and actually drives the Jewish mind deeper into what is true for Judaism that they had lost over the years. And that is he begins the prayer, and this is the game-changer. He begins the prayer with these two words. Our Father. And this, the Aramaic Kaddish does not have. And this, the Jews had lost sight of. The view of God as a Father. In Aramaic, it is this word Abba. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that God is not at the end of of your recitation of prayers. He is not the great keeper of recitation. He is not the CEO of the universe. He is not the the man, the big man upstairs, or the man in the sky. He is not a force that we hope works for our good. Jesus says he's not even primarily a covenant keeper. Our Father becomes the way that Jesus talks about God primarily throughout his ministry. It's different, and it's new. And this is what Christianity is built on. That God is a father, not just a covenant keeper. This Aramaic word, Abba, is often just translated, dad. Dad. Chip Ingram visited Israel one time and he was experiencing a moment here that he wrote about in hearing this word Abba used in context. Here's what he said. He said, so I'm sitting next to the pool, and there's a man there in Israel. He's talking with his wife. He has a drink. He's in his bathing suit, and there's this little boy who's about three. And he wants his dad, and he wants his dad, and his dad is busy. And finally, the little boy goes over, and he pulls, and he pulls on his dad's swimming shorts. He goes, Abba, Abba, Abba. And his dad reached down with one arm and lifted him up and put him on his lap. And Ingram says, and I learned that that's what Jesus was saying. It is. It is. It's a game changer for how the Jews were to see their relationship with God. And it's a game changer for how Christians see their relationship with God. That as we begin to think about God and build our assumptions of bigger and better in this world on God, Christians see that God is our Heavenly dad, father. For some of us, it's hard to imagine that because we've had a terrible father or we've had an absentee father or a father we don't even know. And I understand that from one standpoint. I haven't experienced that, so I don't experience that if that's your reality. I understand it mentally to say I know that this happens. And so for, for some of you who are in that category, it is very difficult to conceive of a loving, benevolent, caring father. But this is how Jesus wants us to picture him. Imagine the best that your dad could ever be. Or if he was present and he was around, imagine the best that he was in those moments. Then imagine him without sin and failure, which we all have. And this is the picture that Jesus gives his disciples. You want to know how to pray? I'll tell you how to pray. Here's how it begins. See God as your heavenly dad, heavenly father. He goes on to think, uh, to explain this in Luke chapter 11. Here's what he says in Luke 11, trying to explain further what it means to have a dad like this. He says, which of you fathers, this is in the context of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Like, who, who does that, right? And then he goes on, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, the father is going to give to you, not necessarily all that you want. Very important difference to note what Jesus says. Our, a benevolent and good father doesn't give kids everything they want. Aren't you glad you didn't get everything you wanted when you were a kid? I am. I couldn't have handled it. I would have been a terrible. I'm glad my father and my mother could distinguish what I really need from what I want. And so the, Jesus says, your, your father who is good will give you the Holy Spirit help convict of sin, illuminate truth, help you see your way. This is the good gift the Father gives. And so I began to ask myself this question, all right, what difference would it make if I saw God as a father who could be talked to? What difference would it make if I saw God, if my view of God was he's a father who can be talked to? And it was a little philosophical for me, a little kind of 30,000 foot level, so I began to ask this next question, and that is this, what did I do as a kid when I knew my dad was around? What did I do as a kid when I knew my dad was around? You can think about this with me. Here's what I would do. I would jump into the pool when I couldn't swim if my dad was there. Would you? When I was going down the slide for the first time and my dad was around, what would I tell him? Hey, dad, watch. Look. When I wasn't sure if I could make the team or not, who do you think I would talk to to give me confidence? And talk about my fears, too. My dad, and yes, my mom, too. When I was getting rid of training wheels on the bike, who do you think I wanted to have me, to have around when I was getting rid of them, to keep me from falling on the road? Who do you think I wanted? I tried, I wanted my dad around. He was fast enough and strong enough to do that. Who do I want to play with outside and spend time with and connect with and run around and jump? And Who do I want to do that with? And who did I want to talk to when I wasn't sure about the dating world? Someone who had been down that road before. Someone who's already walked there. Who do I want to talk to? Yeah, my dad. And who did I want to talk to when I've failed and when I've blown it and I just need a heart-to-heart and I need someone who's not going to judge me. Someone who I can just sit down and be like, Dad, I blew it again. Like, I'm so frustrated. I can't get this right at work, man. I can't get this right. I can't break this habit. It's killing me. Who do I want around when I can't talk to anybody else? Someone who I know loves me unconditionally. That's right, it's my dad. So what do you think it means when Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. Abba to scoop you down and put you on your lap. Do you think if you and I saw God this way, we'd be more courageous? Do you think we'd be less afraid? Do you think if we knew God was right with us and we tried new things that we would go for it? We'd get on the bike and go without the training wheels. We'd jump in the pool when there's no one there. Do Do you think we'd do that? You can have more courage. You can have less fear. Earlier, Kevin prayed for Bobby Law, one of our missionaries in Taiwan. Bobby's dad died uh, just this week, dealing with cancer for a while. Michelle sent us an email to the church about Bobby's dad and the process of what happened. And in that, here's a picture, by the way, of Bobby and Michelle Law and their kids, Desmond and Christina. Here's what Michelle wrote. Happy New Year. Many of you have been praying for Bobby's father who had pancreatic cancer to have assurance of salvation. Bobby's family has not been supportive of their ministry work in Taiwan for years. It's been a very, very difficult situation. She says, praise the Lord. God gave us a miracle before Christmas. On December 18, Reverend Joe Kong Ting was leading a caroling at the hospital where Bobby's father was staying, and Reverend Ting knew Bobby's father in the past and led him to confirm his faith. Bobby's father went home to be with the Lord peacefully on the morning of January 2nd, right before his passing. He wanted Bobby to open the window, even though it was raining outside, and stretched open his hands. It looks like angels came to receive him into heaven She. You don't do that to an impersonal force, but you certainly do that to a loving father who's welcoming you home. Whatever, you're building your version of bigger on. I want you to know, you can build it on the truth that God wants to be your father. He wants to be your father. And when you pray, when you consider, when you hope, and when you dream, they're built on an assumption about who God is and how you relate to him. And I want you and I hope for you that you can have the courage and the hope and the vision and the strength and the peace of soul and mind that comes from praying to a God who Jesus says, he is your Abba. He's your Abba, Father what would you do if you had a benevolent dad all the strength and care in the world who is always with you? Because that's what Christians have. And if you don't know that, Father, let me tell you this morning, let's have that conversation. For next week in Bigger, we want to talk about a prayer that helps us see who we are in light of who God is. We'd love to have you join us for Bigger Part 2. We pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to get into your word this morning, to see a prayer that we have seen for years and heard for years, recited and were aware of generally. Maybe to see again the import of this reality, God, that you're our Father, you're a Heavenly Father, you're in many respects a Dad to be understood as someone who cares and knows and is personal and close. I pray for those this morning who are listening online later or those who are here present this morning whose uh, father experience was tough. It's tough, and this brings up some hard memories of failure and uh, real disappointment and struggle and anger. And, uh, And I pray for those folks this morning who are wrestling with that. I just pray that you give them grace in working this through and trying to see you as a father who actually cares because that word has been so tarnished and kind of ruined for them. I pray that you would restore and redeem that word and that idea for us, particularly those who've been through deep pain with their dads. And I pray that you would help us all to step in and see you as a good father, to pray to you as our heavenly dad, our Abba father, and to see that you want relationship with us. You want this time where we can look you in the eye and you can look us in the eye. We can meet with you and talk with you judgment-free with all the love and care and the grace and the strength that a perfect father has. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to do what we know we can do when our dad is around all the time. It's in Jesus' name that we